In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. This fall, Julie and I finally made it to Oxford, Mississippi, where we visited Roanoke, the home of William Faulkner. Faulkner's novels, perhaps my favorite, is As I Lay Dying. It's a story of a family of dirt poor white Mississippi country people named Bundren. Addie Bundren is dying. Her husband, Ants, is lazy and stupid. The Bundrens have five children Cash, Darrell, Dewey Dell, who is 17 and pregnant. Vardaman, and a boy named Jewel, who, unbeknownst to ants, is actually the progeny of Reverend Whitefield. Before Addie dies, she makes ants promise he will bury her in Jefferson, her hometown across the river. Tragedy and comedy ensue. Addie gives up the ghost. The Bundrens lay her body in a coffin that Cash built, load her on a wagon, and set out for Jefferson but it has rained for days. When they reach the river, they find it in flood and that the bridge has been swept away. Ants doesn't have the sense to know not to try to ford a flooding river. Midstream, the wagon tumps. The mules drown. Cash breaks his leg, and they almost let the body float away downstream. It takes eight days now to get to Jefferson. In the sun, smell becomes a problem. Buzzards follow the wagon and try to steal the corpse. Faulkner makes us laugh and feel guilty for it. You know me, by now you know the analogy. Faulkner's people, Addie, Ants, and the rest, live in a world of William Faulkner's making. They and his world and their world are his creation, and they are made after his own image. They cannot see or sense William Faulkner, their creator. Darrell, who is a thinker, might guess that they live in a world of someone else's making, a world of fire and flood and great misfortune. Within Faulkner's world, which they do not realize is Faulkner's world, because it is the only universe they know, the Bundrens have their own lives to live. They make their own decisions and reap the benefits, or more often, the consequences of their choices. Their author gives them freedom. If someone in the story were to suggest that they were the creation of a greater mind, they would wonder what that meant. What evidence was there of this greater mind? If, after they had dragged themselves exhausted from the swollen river, Cash speechless for the pain, buzzards circling overheads, and dead mules washing down towards the Gulf of Mexico. They were to stop and shake their fists at the gray skies and demand to know why their lives were so wretched and what kind of author would have prepared such pain and indignity for the works of his own hand. They would have been met with silence. If they became religious and prayed to their creator for guidance, strength, and help to meet the trials ahead, who knows whether they would receive any nudge that they could discern from their author's hands. And yet every move they make, 
every step they take, every place they see, every moment they live is a move in him, a step with him, a place of his making prepared for them, a moment alive in his hands. In Faulkner, they live, they move, they have their being. They could not know except by faith that he loves them. They could not know except by faith that he does help them. They could not know except by faith that he forgives them again and again and again their ignorance and sin against each other and against him. Of course, only God and William Faulkner know if William Faulkner would have been worthy of such a faith from the people he created. But suppose that he, the author, does love his world. Suppose he decides to enter the world of his making by writing himself into his own story. And then he appears one day out of a burning bush to Darl or Dewey Dell and says, I'm Faulkner. It was I who made you. Better yet, imagine that he writes himself apart as a man in his own world. Addie's son, but no father. The neighbors can suspect Reverend Whitefield if they like. But a son is born, grows up good and strong. He loves the people, ignorant and stupid and mean as though they sometimes are. He loves them because he made them and they're his. He talks to them about the author. He shows them how to live. They love him and they hate him for it. Suppose he keeps for himself some of his author's power. He writes new sights sometimes for the blind. He speaks to Addie in her box and says, Come out. And out she comes. Call it poet's license. Suppose that one day he takes Darl and Cash and Jewel and goes to Arkansas, to the mountains, to commune with the author himself. Faulkner the creature calling upon Faulkner the creator and suddenly as he prays, the appearance of his countenance is altered and his raiment becomes dazzling white. And the three boys are sleepy but stay up and see their brother transfigured. And a dark cloud moves in and surrounds them and they are terrified and a voice from the cloud speaks, this is my son, my chosen, listen to him. When you imagine this, you are thinking like a Christian. Because we are indeed living in a story written by someone else. If we search all over the world, to the depths of the earth and the farthest reaches of the universe, we see him nowhere but find him everywhere. Not only in the fresh green grass, the sunshine and clear blue sky, but also in the rocky, barren places the desert, the wind, and the rain, the night as well as day. While we here are only a few characters in a cast of billions, and there is no telling whether our role is central or peripheral to the plot, we are important to the author, who is involved in every detail of our lives, and who personally calls each and every one of us by name.
By this analogy, perhaps we can better understand how, from our present point of view, there will naturally be widely varying opinions about the author, who he is, what he has in mind, what's in store for us. We can appreciate by one, by why some question his existence or his motives in writing a story in which hardship is ubiquitous and tragedy is common. But more importantly than that, we see the larger picture and the grand sweep. This is the epiphany. We see the pieces, tragedy and comedy, come together. This story into which we have been born is good. Even shadow figures in its beauty. This is what we believe and celebrate at Trinity Cathedral. And it is what we live by, too, as best we can. St. Paul reminds us, Now we see as though through a glass darkly, only then face to face. From where we stand within the author's world, we cannot know his mind. All the things we sometimes want to know about why or how come or what will happen next and even to some extent what we're supposed to do have their perfect and infallible answers in a world which is presently beyond our ken. Our vision is imperfect, but in faith we are not blind. In Christ, the mind and will of God have come to light within our story. Paul had an unusual encounter with our author on a country road, and because of it, he could rightly claim to know a lot about what the author's, about the author's purposes and plans. But even Paul did not claim to have a perfect grasp of God's intentions. These are his inspired words from Holy Scripture disclaiming perfect knowledge. Now our knowledge is imperfect and our prophecy is imperfect. For now we see in a mirror dimly. Now I know in part, he said. Until the perfect comes and our knowledge is at last complete, until we see God face to face, there is only one perfect thing. When we have it, we have the spirit of the author himself. Perfect thing is patient and kind. It is not irritable, resentful, boastful, or rude. It doesn't insist on its own way. It believes, bears, endures, and hopes in all things. We Christians can, by reason of our faith, walk in this uncertain life sure of just two things. One is that our lives are part of a great story that has a, begin a beginning and a meaning, but no end. And its deepest mystery is the love of the author for his creatures of his own imagination with whom he chose to dwell. The other is that when we are lost and do not know which way we should turn, there is a compass which unfailingly points us to the way in which the writer of this story would, choose, would have us choose to go. 
Its name is love. It laughs, it cries, it takes its lumps, and it faileth never. <laughs>